up, Stitches? Welcome to the fifth episode of So What, the podcast all about historic needlework and the ladies who stitched, and how much I love them. I'm Isabella Rosner, historic needlework fan and dweeb extraordinaire. You know me at this point. Just like to say hi. You know the deal. Today's episode is this podcast's first interview. How thrilling, truly how thrilling. I am so excited. Are you excited? I hope so. Here we go. Today's guest is Dr. Susan K. Williams, the Chief Executive, Curator, and Archivist of the Royal School of Needlework. The Royal School of Needlework! Britain's premier hand needlework school and organization. Holy heck, this enthusiasm is not fake. It's real. It's here. I'm screaming internally and a bit externally. I'm freaking out. I am so excited. And I am truly shooketh that my first interview is with such a prestigious institution. I cannot believe this is happening. The Royal School of Needlework is the organizational center of excellence for the art of hand embroidery. It was founded in 1872 and originally operated in a small room above a bonnet shop on Sloane Street in London. It then moved to a purpose-built center on Exhibition Road close to the Victorian Albert Museum. It's been based at Hampton Court Palace since 1987, so if you ever go to Hampton Court Palace, do give them a little shout out and say hey. The school is a registered charity and has always been under royal patronage. The RSN offers a variety of embroidery courses and programs, takes on embroidery commissions, and has a collection of more than 4,000 embroidered objects. Dr. Susan K. Williams, who I'm interviewing today, is the chief executive, curator, and archivist of the RSN, a role she has held since 2007. She's lectured all over the world about textiles. I actually saw her speak in Delaware a few years ago, and she was excellent, so I'm really jazzed about getting a chance to speak with her today. Her main research focuses on the history of dyes and textiles. In 2013, she published her first book on the subject, aptly called The Story of Dyes and Textiles. In 2015, she was made a fellow of the Society of Dyers and Colorists for her work, which is a society I did not know existed, but I think is really cool, and now I want to be a member of, and now I'm trying to figure out how to get in there. And just to let you know, the beginning of our conversation was peppered with Zoom issues and me saying sorry a lot, so I've cut out the beginning and start with the first question. Apologies also for any sound issues. Virtual interviews come with some technical difficulties. I'm sure you understand. Without further ado, let's get chatting. The first question I want to ask is, what is the Royal School of Needlework? Okay, so the Royal School of Needlework is the International Centre of Excellence for the Art of Hand Embroidery. That's us in a nutshell, uh, but to expand on that, we, um, we teach, practice and promote hand embroidery um, in many different disciplines and to the highest standards. Love that. I mean, right up my alley and up the alleys of everybody who listens to this podcast, I would like to think. Um, What kind of classes are taught at the Royal School of Needlework? Gosh, we have lots of different classes. So um, we start with our three-year full-time programs, which are the degree in hand embroidery, the only one in the country that's purely on hand embroidery. Congratulations. And our future tutor program, which is training those people who are going to be able to teach for us. So to teach for us, you have to have been taught by us because there are certain aspects to the technique which are really important that, um, that our tutors know. Um, but I realize that not many people can come for three years. Um, so we have lots of other programs, particularly our certificate and diploma in technical hand embroidery, 
which is a part-time course open to anybody and everybody and we teach people from around the world on that course because we are the only people who offer the high technical level um, that it offers so certificate and diploma taken by people of all ages and as I say from all over uh, and then we have our short classes so these are classes that may take place in one day and that's what I probably would have said until three months ago. But now yes. I can say... The rainbow class is coming up. Yes. That is right. We have <laughs> online classes. So we have ones that run um, half a day. We have ones that run early evening. We have ones that run the classic 10 till 4 UK time. But we are also now putting on ones that run a bit later so that our friends from across the North Atlantic can uh, join us as well. Um, so they run um, from 3 o'clock, 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. UK time, and that's about 10 till 4 Eastern yeah. Standard Time. Very nice for the East Coast people. That's awesome and so global. And am I correct in thinking, this is a question I haven't put on the list, so I hope it's okay. Um, the Royal School of Needlework seems to have a kind of um, offshoots. Like I asked that because I used to live in Williamsburg, Virginia when I was working at Colonial Williamsburg and there was a needlework center there that had an association with the RSN. Is that right? That is right. So we call them satellites. Right. That is um, the word I was trying to think of. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the UK, our satellites are, well, at the moment, are Rugby, um, uh, Bristol, Glasgow and Durham. Okay. But then we have a little pop-up, which we were, we were trying to do in Lancaster, but unfortunately that's, that's um, had to go by the by in the short term. Um, but then we also run classes um, twice a year in Williamsburg. Unfortunately, not where you would have known us before um, because we had to, we had to move. Um, but that's what we have been doing particularly teaching the certificate and diploma that I mentioned, because that's really um, a meaty subject that people come and get into and really enjoy for an intensive um, two weeks, an intensive fortnight to work on that course. That um, is so cool. And we teach in Japan. What? Oh. We have a Japanese tutor. Uh, her name is Emi Nimura. And she graduated from um, us at when we were um, well, at Hampton Court earlier, but she now teaches for us in Japan. And um, so we have Japanese students. And in fact, I was out in Japan in January seeing our students and making some presentations for their certificates and some awards. Um, oh, so that, that was very so nice cool. to see them. That is so cool. Do you have any, I know the world is a bit of a mess right now, so it might be impossible to say, but do you have any future plans of other countries branching out internationally even further? Well, we had plans. I think they slightly have to go on hold for a tiny bit. However, that is most definitely not stopping us because I can tell you that actually we have already started teaching to people who've already part done the course, um, um, certificate course and diploma course online with some students in Australia. Oh, that's so cool. Wow, that is so cool. That time difference must be crazy, but the it dedication. Rather, but the, the tutor who is teaching them is herself from Australia, so she is a bit more simpatico and 
and again we're we're breaking up the days and how we teach them so they're not our, our tutor is not into the early hours of the morning fair enough and the dedication to needlework knows no bounds so you know when you got a stitch time yeah. is but a foreign concept you just gotta <laughs> get down and do it. That is so cool. Um, could you briefly talk about what kind of stuff has been taught over the course of like RSN's history? Have those classes changed over time? I imagine they have. I think they have changed because yeah. back in 1872, when we started, um, when you came, you were only given nine days of tuition and then you were tested. So you were expected to come uh, with um, some knowledge and, as I say, tested after nine days. And if you were found suitable, then um, you would be put to work in the workroom. So, um, yes. <laughs> so from that, we then went to having um, the diploma, which ran from the late 19th century up to about 1960. There was a lot more teaching of hand embroidery in in schools so many of them went off into schools and colleges and taught there that makes um, sense. and some went to america and so erica, erica wilson, wilson was one of them i uh, love her she she's <laughs> the person who uh got me into needlework because my first internship in university was uh at the nantucket historical association and i ended up uh doing a lot of work with the nantucket school of needlery documents and it's all because of her so i've known about the royal school of needlework for a long time because i was just a year old who was like what is going on i don't understand i must just give a little shout out at this point because we have links with winterthur and the yes. museum in delaware yes, and they course. are trying to put together at this very moment um an exhibition on erica wilson oh i uh, know due to be going out and um giving a lecture to them in um october that conference has now been put online so many more people can actually participate in it. Um, so yes, do, do look up a Winterthur and the details of the conference uh, because it's now going online so many more people can join. Okay, and I will put a link to that in the So What social media because I want to know as much as probably everybody else wants to know. Thank you. I had no idea. Wow, okay. Quietly fangirling over here. Everything's fine. <laughs> The, the, the diploma, as I say, that ran for a very long period of time. We then moved to what was known as the apprenticeship, uh, but we had to do all the fundraising for that. We never got any government money. You hear of apprenticeships and you hear of government money. We never got any. So we finished that in 2009, and that was when we introduced the degree. Okay. But it quickly became clear that the degree wasn't going to be the substitute uh, for um, the apprenticeship in terms of, of providing us with, with tutors. So we then uh, allowed the degree to create itself in its own way. Uh, and we then subsequently added future tutors um, in 2012. So those have been the big schemes. And plus one of the things that has been running through, but, but we're now beginning to catch up with it, is um, evening classes. So we launched evening classes in 1897. Oh, and they were actually launched. They were launched with a lecture by Walter Crane talking about the relationship of embroidery and design. Oh, yes. Ooh. And over 300 people came to this lecture. 
Um, and then um, the reason that we set up the evening classes was that we had the RSN had discovered that there were some ladies who were teaching hand embroidery who were only self-taught. This was obviously thought not acceptable. <laughs> and, and so they thought that they would put on classes in the evening so that they would not impede the ladies earning their living. But oh, the classes were in the evening mm. and there were two days that were stitch teaching, two days that were design teaching oh. and then Friday was what today we would call work on own. So oh, that's so nice. At, at that time, many people would live in quite contained accommodation. Right. They might not have room for a frame. So the idea was that they could come in on a Friday evening and they could still stitch and have the space to stitch instead of being at home. That's really nice. Get some nice communal crafting action. Absolutely. You see, friends. we're at the forefront of that. People think it's more modern, but no. <laughs> just, you know, you're Although just having said that, oh. if you go into one of our classrooms, mm -hmm. um, I, I won't have to tell you, I once had someone who was from Radio 4. Uh, and she said, I want to come and record. I need to record the sound of embroidering. And <laughs> I took around several rooms. And all she could hear really was the sound of concentration. Yeah. You know, you have to get you have to get your microphone very close to even hear the needle going through the fabric. Yeah. I don't eventually think much sound there. Eventually, we went into you know we went into one room, and she said, "Oh, it's just like Jane Austen's time," which the degree students did not appreciate at all. <laughs> I would have been like, "Oh my gosh!" It just so, so happened they were working on white work, uh, and okay. um, that'll do it. I think it was the, the the connection with white work was what made um, the young woman come out with this comment. But eventually, we went into one of the classrooms. And there were two classes doing certificate and diploma, two teachers, and there were two individual people having separate conversations with um, their tutors, quiet conversations. But she got excited. Oh, at last, I can record something. <laughs> <laughs> How, what, do you want to talk about what else is in the collection? If you're with pleasure. That, I mean, I'm very keen, if that's okay. Yes, I'll, I'll come back to my other point later. But, uh, so many different things in the collection. It is eclectic. There is no other word for the it. Best, because everything in the collection has been donated. We oh, do not have the money right. to buy anything for the collection. So um, it, we, we get lots of people offering us things. And I'm afraid to say that, you know, great granny's um, cross stitch that she did from a kit is right. not what we're one. looking yeah. for. <laughs> um, but we also get some amazing things that take a nanosecond to say, yes, please, we'll, we'll delightfully have that in the collection, please. So we, we start with, uh, so we have a policy, which is anything that has a direct link to the RSN, uh, that is a, a tick. Uh, and as a result of that, we have been given back some pieces by former diploma students, which is great because that helps tell our own story. Because um, our, our archive is, is thin in some areas. So it's really great to have those pieces back. Yeah, um, a testament to what everybody was taught. It's so nice. Yes, and then pieces that either made by people who worked for us or um, commissions, very rarely 
commissions come back, although we have got a very large one that has come back now in perpetuity, um, given back to us by the family. Um, Can you tell us what that is, or is it a secret? No, no, it, it's, we know it as, as the Pennelli's panel, okay. and it's a very large panel, which has a crest in the centre. Um, it's so large, it took seven people to erect it, and oh. it had to be specially surveyed by his, um, Hampton Court Palace to check that it could go and be fitted. Um, oh, wow. So it stays where it is, it can't be moved. Um, oh, but it. we accepted it back. Uh, it's a mixture, it's silk shaving, it's gold work, um, and we made it in the late um, 1970s, early 1980s uh, for a commission uh, which went to this family and um, the, the gentleman who, who had it had a chateau. So he had rooms large enough for it. Good for And him. I think most of his children do not, they, they sold the chateau and they don't have rooms that are large enough so that's fair they decided to give it back to the school which which is great to have it um and we because we have a lot of artifacts that actually go with it we have the designs we have the notes oh, in the file etc you have its whole story oh, yes love that do you have favorite so, pieces sorry no go oh i do but they they keep changing okay, i mean <laughs> That's part of the fun of being a curator, I'm assuming, of such an eclectic. Completely. And also, um, in my office, I have pieces from the collection on display. And I, I change them around. But that, that is my perk, if you like. Oh, um, yeah. To have those on the walls. So there's a very nice piece of, well, to look at it by technique, you would describe it as Jacobean cruel work. But My, damn, my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's actually not worked in wool thread, it's worked in silks. Um, so it's got very beautifully shiny flowers and very nice silk shading, but it also has a number of other classic Jacobean cruel work stitches um, that are part of it. It's not just silk shading. So, and it's quite a large piece as well. Um, so to, to envision, envision it, it's about the size, well, if you think of two fire screens side by side. Wow. It's that's, quite big. That's, that is way bigger than I thought it would be. Is it yeah. actually that old or is it newer made to look of that period? I think it's probably, no, I think it's 20th century. I don't I, think it's super well, old. Okay. I mean, uh, I was, that was going to say, what the heck? But yeah, that makes sense. Yes. Um, but that was given to us um, a couple of years ago. Um, and that was, that was an easy to accept you know, decision. Cool. My dream, yes. Um, and then, um, and then, given to us, where about eighteen months ago, we've got um, also in my office. I have a, a Lord Chancellor's purse. <gasps> now, the current Lord <laughs> Chancellor's purse, which is used by Her Majesty the Queen um, for, for things like the State Opening of Parliament and other major events, uh, we made the current one. That is and it, awesome. Wow. For it, was, it, was, it was made in, in 1984 and we had it back in 2010 for a little bit of TLC. And then we asked to borrow it back for an exhibition at Cumberland Lodge in 2011. So at the time the Queen was our patron. She was also the patron of Cumberland Lodge. So we invited her to come and have a look. And so one Sunday morning after church, she uh, came and had a look and I showed her around the exhibition Ooh. and of course 
when we got to the Lord Chancellor's purse, she recognised it. Uh, oh. But they said there was always a problem putting the speech back. Um, and I took this on board because the front of it is so heavy with the embellishment that the handle kind of comes out of the back of the front. That so if you pull the handle back, you can't get the speech in when it's being put back. So you have to lift the handle forward to put the speech in. That's and seemingly, whichever flunky does this every year forgets. <laughs> that is something I've never thought about. But of course, that makes sense. If the entire front is basically metallic thread, it's just going to flop. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm also going to include a photo of a more historic example of one of those on the social media because those things are crazy. Those are some very, very good favorite pieces to have. That, I mean, that's, that's a high standard. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask about commissions because, I mean, you just mentioned it, and I remember not to be like a celebrity fangirl, but I heard you talk at the Winterthur um, conference on needlework a few years ago, and I remember you mentioning a fairly recent commission for, I think, Kate Middleton's wedding dress? Is that true? Yes. And I is true. was very excited in my seat. So I was, I'm curious about what kind of commissions does the RSN do? What, um, how much of the work of the RSN is commissions versus teaching? I, I have lots of questions about that. Yeah, no problem. Um, so we have always had well, we now call it a studio. It used to be referred to as the workroom. We have always made pieces for other people. Um, and in fact, you know, in some cases, the only reference that we have to making something is because we have the workbook or we have um, a photograph. Mm -hmm. But of course, back in the day, we didn't use to photograph every piece of work. Of um, and so people can, might come to us and say, we believe you made this uh, and we can't always tell. Um, some people seem to think that we only do royal things. And as I explain, if we only did coronations, we would have not have had any work for many a decade. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we did do work for every coronation of the 20th century. Um, of which there were four. Um, so, you know, we have done coronations. We have, we did the uh, Victoria's, Queen Victoria's funeral pall oh. um, back in 1901. Um, but, um, it's not a delight, but that's. <laughs> <laughs> um, our most recent significant royal commission was for, as you say, Kate Middleton's Duchess of Cambridge's wedding dress. So we were commissioned by Sarah Burton of Alexander McQueen, who was responsible for the dress. And she came to the RSN because she recognized and later stated, you know, that we were the real deal in terms of hand embroidery. Yes. And we hand embroidered lace motifs to a pattern laid down by Sarah Burton onto the bodice, the skirt, the train, the six meters round the outside of the veil, and the shoes. That is crazy. That is so cool because I remember so well, it was in 2011, is that right? That's right, yes. Because I remember sitting in a classroom in Los Angeles in high school, watching the wedding with some of my friends, you know, on the other side of the world uh, the next day because of the time difference. And I remember commenting on the embroidered lace 
bodice skirt situation. And now I'm talking to the person who basically coordinated it and made it all happen. So I feel like I'm in the presence of a celebrity. That is, thank you for that. I was very much the background person and, and, and keeping, keeping all our stitches going. So it was, it was a lot of plate juggling. And, you were the um, producer. You were the behind the <laughs> oh. um, One brief question about historic commissions, because I know that at the beginning of the Royal School of Needlework, um, a lot of the work that was being done was for people like Edward Burne-Jones and William Morris and the Arts and Crafts guys. Is that true? What was that kind of... I just don't know much about that and I'd like to hear more. Okay, so our founder was a lady called Lady Welby. And when she set up the RSN, she had sort of three principles. Okay. One was keeping hand embroidery alive, um, <laughs> and technically, so that it wasn't lost. A gem, a queen. Second, um, it was about having hand embroidery recognized as an art form and that it should be seen alongside fine art. Yes. And this is where the, the term, there's a specific term for the period called art embroidery. This is where it came oh, right and um and why we were founded as the school of art needlework um was because of of that belief and um, our third founding principle uh, was that we were for uh, ladies middle class educated ladies but who would otherwise have been destitute had it not been mm. for an opportunity to make a living but we can talk about that in a minute but in terms of the art embroidery as I say, it was not about tiny little pieces that people made in the hand, you know, mm -hmm. that might be for a bell pull or a cushion cover or something. This was about things on the large scale. And we then decided to work with, um, with uh, designers. And in 1875, we set up an art committee uh, that had people like Frederick Layton on it and Val Princep Ooh. and G.F. Bodley. And that was really to help give their name to something. That makes sense. Um, they didn't last, they didn't stay on it very long. Oh. It moved on. <laughs> okay. But we had already started working with Morris and Byrne Jones and especially Walter Crane Ooh. and then Selwyn Image. And they designed pieces that were large. So there are two pieces, um, Principia, uh, for, uh, Poses rather, and um, Musica, which we did for Byrne Jones. Uh, and these are each more than six feet high. So, you know, oh, nearly wow. two meters, two meters. And now they're very famous yes. distance now, two meters long. Um, well, two meters. this is a much better two meters because it's art embroidery. Um, yeah. And um, so these are very large pieces. One of them actually went to the V&A for, for the um, aestheticism exhibition um, in 2011. Huh. And then if, if you, if anyone went to the Burne Jones exhibition that was at um, the Tate not so long ago. Yes. In, in the very last room, there was yes. um, uh, <laughs> oh, Pomona. And the, the Pomona one usually sees is the one that was woven. But this was the one that the RSN embroidered. Wow. Um, mm. So, yes, we worked with them. As I say, most, the person we worked with most was Walter Crane. And we worked with him from the early um, 1870s right the way through to the turn of the century. Uh, and we have about 35 different designs for pieces that, that we did that he had designed. Um, 
And then the unknown person of that period is a gentleman called Selwyn Image, who was originally the Reverend Selwyn Image, but he, he gave up his sort of clerical side uh -huh. to become more of a designer. Um, although poor Selwyn, everyone seems to think his work is somebody else's because there was a piece which until very recently was attributed to Burne Jones at the V&A. Oh, and no. we told them, no, we have the original design of that. It's by <laughs> Selwyn Image. Oh. Um, and then even ourselves, we put out a handbook of embroidery technique in 1880. And a previous um, archivist thought that the front cover was probably by Walter Crane. And then a couple of years ago, uh, we got it, we were contacted by uh, an auction house and um, they said, oh, we've got this front cover drawing. Um, it says front cover handbook um, from the RSN. Uh, and we did manage to purchase that because it was so linked to us. Congratulations. Uh, that is it good. turned out that the front cover was by Selwyn Image. Wow. It sounds like that is like a PhD waiting to happen. If somebody oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Albeit about, you know, an unsung hero of the arts and crafts movement who was heavily involved in design and needlework. Look him up, sell an image. It's time. I feel he's, like every episode... however, the hardest person to look up with a surname like Image. Indeed. I mean, he sounds like his own business, to be honest. Sell an image just sounds like, you know, got your business card going. That is true. I feel like every episode I have of this is just me telling whoever listens to this thing to like write a PhD about one part of needlework, like historic needlework that has never been studied because there is so much good stuff that just hasn't been looked at. The next question I wanted to ask or like the next kind of question area that I wanted to get into is um, how the Royal School of Needlework uh, utilizes historic needlework techniques like what kind of stitches do you use or how do you uh how are you influenced by historic needlework in the work that you currently do okay so we royal school of needlework really um uses the the historic technical stitches as our as our sort of ground base because everyone needs a, a very good um, beginning and if you have those beginning stitches then you can build on them and what you do with those stitches you know is up to you so for example um, chain stitch we know that that can be recorded back to China more than three and a half thousand years ago yeah. um, so it's been around a long time you know yet how many people use chain stitch today most of them um, right. because it's a very useful stitch it's been used extensively so there's a lot of, of continuity in that. And that's one of the reasons why the Royal School of Needlework set up the RSN Stitch Bank. So the idea of Stitch that. Bank yes. is to try and bring together every, every stitch in the world and to look and see how many of these are ones that have been used extensively in lots of different places mm -hmm. and how many of them um, have been... Um, uh, have been uh, used in um, uh, just at very small places or a limited number of ways. Yes. Uh, so what we have done is, um, you know, it's a project that we are working on. We had hoped to launch the first 500 stitches 
kind of next month. Unfortunately, we've had to pause that because the work is on hold, um, because it was requiring two people to work closely together, photographing and stitching. Yes, um, that makes sense. It, work, work will be ongoing soon, and then we can um, show that uh, we can uh, put all of these uh, stitches together. People can see how they, um, where they came from. People can add information about them if they have good good sources, and we can check that out and look at it. Yes. Um, and people can adopt a stitch. So if they have a favourite stitch, That's what I and did. They don't want to lost um, people can adopt a stitch um, and uh, again we're meant to be sending out the certificates of adoption but they've got slightly delayed because of this so um, these are all things that we will pick up again once we can and um, we will then um, be able to build on stitch bag and it's a long-term project because we'll start with the, with the easy stitches if you like then we need to liaise with people from different places around the world that have got a strong stitch culture yes. and see if they can um, uh, participate. So then we'll be looking for external funding to help them to be able to participate and bring together their stitches and or if they've got the same stitches but they were used in particular patterns, we'll mm -hmm. probably feature those as well. And then also there'll be um, a picture of the actual stitch when it's finished. Um, how to do the stitch both in pictures and with a video yes uh, and then there'll be some examples of the stitch being used so on, on a, an object um, so that you can see it and then again we will be able to add ones from different cultures so we'll start with pieces that are in the RSN collection mm -hmm. and then we will um, add others as well oh I am truly truly so excited for the stitch bank because I mean I've worked, been very lucky enough to work at a bunch of different museums that have uh, pieces of needlework from all over the world. And uh, I recently, actually, the last episode of this podcast is about Mexican and Guatemalan samplers. And I spent some time talking about the Aztec stitch, which is a very specific and regional stitch. Um, and I had a lot of difficulty finding information about the stitch and what it actually looks like in real life versus how it's created. And so I feel like the Stitch Bank will do exactly what I and a bunch of other people need it to do uh, when it comes to not only making, but also for scholars or people interested in looking at old objects, understanding um, what, how those stitches were made. And also I think that could possibly help people identify where objects were made if it's hard to tell based on stitches in certain locations. Also- I think that's absolutely the case. Oh, and I that's mean, probably why, again, why we were doing it. Yes, it's for stitchers, but it's also for curators, conservators, historians who can all come and reference it. Um, yes. And in fact, you will also be able to find Quaker Stitch there. Yes. So Quaker, Quaker Stitch, which um, the Quakers, the team who were working on the um, the Quaker history. Um, they actually came to the RSN and said, is this a new stitch? And we checked out all our books and references and we said to them, yes, we believe this is a new stitch. And that was where Quaker Stitch came from. Oh my goodness. Wow, I'm actually embarrassed because I don't even know what the Quaker Stitch is, but the Stitch Bank will come out and then I'll know what it is. And also I'll search on the internet. Wow, I'm very excited. 
this is a big question, a very vague question, so make of it what you will. What do you think the role of needlework is in today's world? I think there are several roles. Number one, in the, in the current scenario, it's therapy. Yes, because it is. Stitch can be therapeutic and yes. it can be calming. It can be just something that you can just do quietly. And when everything else is in a complete furore around you, um, Stitch can be very positive in that respect. Agreed. But I would also say Stitch is creative. And yes. people can be creative in many different ways. And Stitch is back to being an art. You know, it's not just um, a quote unquote little hobby or yes. little craft. Agreed. It is an art form. Yes. And, um, and therefore it can be creative in so many different ways. And yes. you know, so many embroiders, you can just go through Instagram and see the variety of people who are yes. working in Stitch and just see how creative it can be. So I think um, it's, it's also about you know, embellishment, it's about personalization. There are lots of other aspects of Stitch that, that can be there, but if it was just my top two, I think therapeutic and creative. Agreed, honestly, I think so many people, myself included really, have come to stitching because of the general uh, dumpster fire that have been these last few months and not really, uh, you know, so many things are unpredictable that there's something very comforting about the repetitive yet creative task of sticking a, a needle in and out of a piece of fabric and creating something beautiful or interesting or evocative or all of those things put together out of uh, the simple in and out uh, out of a piece of fabric. It's very powerful. And I think it is the ultimate coronavirus lockdown activity. So my last question is, if you were to bring back any type of needlework from any time period, any place that is not actively being made right now, what would it be? Um, I noticed that your particular interest is the 17th century and yes. uh, raised embroidery. And yes. I have great sympathy for that. And I, it's a, I love that period. Um, and particularly the, the boxes, the caskets uh, are fantastic. Yeah. But I think, I think the one I would bring back um, is the um, Opus Anglicanum gold oh. work, which oh, is yeah. technically known oh. as underside couching. Oh, that is a, that's a I mean, really we, good we answer. Why, we know why underside couching is not done now. It's an expensive technique because you use more gold thread uh, and it because you're putting it through the fabric all the time it takes longer to do yeah, yeah. but i always think about it in relation to at the time lighting would have been candlelight and underside couching would have given you many more facets of the metal thread so that it would have hit the light in different ways yeah and um I think, you know, we don't recognize how tremendous that would have been at the time. Um, so stunning. Because now any piece of Opus Anglicanum is not allowed anywhere near candlelight. Right. <laughs> and, um, right. you know, and we don't see it in the dark sort of thing. So um, I think that was tremendous. Also, um, on, the, on the other side, it was 
uh, it was professionally undertaken by men and women. So both men yes. and women worked in the city of London as professional embroiderers at that time. Um, and I think that's a great positive. I um, agree. Because unfortunately later on, uh, the professional embroiderers were then mostly men uh, yeah. and women kind of got pushed out. Um, but, uh, you know, it took a long time for them to make a resurgence, um, or there were yeah. just one-offs uh, doing it professionally. But um, I think, that's yeah, really that, that for, so for all of those reasons, I would choose underside couching. That's a really, really good answer. And some, one that I haven't considered before, because I think about this a lot, and I think a lot about the the difficulty of stitching only in natural light without artificial light, without glasses sometimes, and how difficult it must have been for people for centuries to stitch basically based on the sun and how the sun shines. But I hadn't considered the, I had only thought about the difficulties of that and not considered the beauty that can come with that. You would, as you say, you work by natural light, Yep. And even That's illustrations that we've got going back to the 15th century, they show people by windows, mm, even yep. with the window open. So it was to get maximum light onto your work that you were, you were positioned by windows and um, so that you weren't reliant on you know, a couple of candles, even if you had put behind them something that could help mirror the candlelight. Um, right. But so no, it was mostly natural light so you would only work when the hours of light were were around um but um i think the fact that most of these pieces were used by either royalty or by the church w when they were in the church that's when you would have had them in candlelight imagine i mean i am assuming that the people who made the things were not the same like they could not they did not have the opportunity to see the things being worn in candlelight I only wish they could have because I think that would have been an amazing thing to to see what you were working on in the natural light, which you know glistened a little bit because it was gold. Then go into yes. this very dramatically lit space and then just glitter and glisten and shine. Oh, wow! Yes, that would be that would be a good time. Yeah. Well, I cannot advocate for time travel because I feel like it would mess up a lot of things. But I would like to time travel back to that specific moment to just. To, to watch the lovely underside couching uh, exist in a candlelit church. That is what I want, that specific moment. Wow. <laughs> That's my own personal, we're gonna go into hopes and dreams now. Um, well, okay, that is it. Do you have anything to promote? I will happily um, put all of the Royal School of Needlework links and images on all the so at social media, but is there anything that um, you feel like people who are interested in the Royal School of Needlework don't know about and should know about? Anything that you want to share? Well, just to say, we have got um, some new online classes are being added onto our website almost every day at the moment. And so um, okay. do look out for those. Um, and that some of them are at different times of the day. So um, just have a look and see uh, in, in more detail. And then um, when we get back to um, Hampton Court, we have one exhibition which is nearly, was technically meant to have finished by now, um, which is 
faces and figures in um, embroidery. Oh, and I'm oh. probably going to do a little video around that um, that we can put online for people to have a look who missed the exhibition. Um, and then the next exhibition should be um, Stitch is International. And well, that then. is Good. with pieces from in our collection, but from many different places. So um, from China, India, Turkey, South America, um, Europe, etc., etc. So um, we probably won't be able to allow people to come to see that um, because of the space distance issues. Um, but what, again, what I'm probably going to do is a virtual tour um, so that people can have a look at it um, and, and possibly even a curator's event, which they oh. could pay to join. Oh my gosh, so. my dream. Okay, well... <laughs> Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you for dealing with the uh, difficulties of Zoom. Thank you for being my first guest and for dealing with uh, being the guinea pig to this for this project. Um, and thank you for sharing your knowledge and the Royal School of Needlework and all of the stuff it does because it. I am not kidding when I say that it was really one of the first things I learned about when I was first getting interested in historic needlework and it inevitably added so much fuel to my Anglophile fire and was really one of the reasons why I wanted to move to England and live in England. Um, and one of the reasons why I felt like as somebody who was interested in historic textiles and needlework specifically, England was the right place to be. So thank you. Isabella, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed listening to my interview with Susan as much as I enjoyed doing it. I'm really grateful to her and the Royal School of Needlework in general for being my first interviewee on this podcast. It's so rad to me that this podcast's first interview is with an organization that really led me toward the study of historic needlework. Everything has come full circle, which is like so crazy to me. Anywho, enough about me. On this podcast's social media, you'll find images of objects mentioned in this interview, as well as links to RSN classes, the Stitch Bank, the Winterthur online conference about Erica Wilson, and some other stuff. It's at So What Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Now go out and stitch some stories, and please let them be stories of racial justice. Bye!